0: An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and karma wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine they will be consumed like dry stubble from you o Nineveh has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness this is what the Lord says although they have allies and are numerous they will be cut off and pass away Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfil your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. No more. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed." Well, there's a Bible reading for you this morning. Now, when we come to this book, is it Nahum, Nahum, or Nahum? I've always called it Nahum, but recently I've I've heard it called Nahum and Nahum. So now I don't know. What do we call this book? Well, over the last week, I've given all three of them a run. I was chewing the fat with Russell on the phone while I was on study leave and talking to him about the book, and I was saying Nahum. On another day, I was at, I was calling it Nahum, and in my head the whole time, I've just been sticking with Nahum. Well, for the sake of consistency, we'll go with what's always been in my head, Nahum. My theory: say it with confidence, and no one cares. You can say it with confidence, but how confident would you be to actually explain what's in this book? To be honest, up until two weeks ago, I could have told you that I'd read it. I could have told you roughly where it was in the Old Testament. I could have told you that Nahum was a prophet and maybe some of the general themes of prophecy. But I couldn't have said why this particular book was in the Bible. I couldn't have told you what it was about. Nahum was completely unfamiliar to me. I've never heard a sermon on it. I've never read it in Bible study. I can't ever remember thinking deeply about this book until a week or so ago. Well, last week I did get to think deeply about it and you know what I discovered? The number one thing I discovered about Nahum is something that I'd discovered before but I needed to discover again. All of this book, every single page, every single chapter, every verse, every single word in the Scriptures is God's word to us. That's what I discovered last week again. Even Nahum is God speaking to us. God has something to say to us in this book. What Russell said last week as he kicked off this series in the Minor Prophets uh, called mighty to save was spot on in every age the prophets lift our eyes from narrowed earthly existence to something greater to a glorious reality that 's hope filled and is good and what does Nahum bring to the table in that glorious in, in bringing us that glorious reality in setting our eyes on that that thing that is hope-filled and good, what does Nahum bring to the table? Judgment. It's a non-negotiable. Because God's path to what's great must deal with what's bad. God's path to what's great must deal with what's bad. There can't be a better future, there can't be a glorious reality while ever there's injustice and evil that continues unbridled, unrestrained in the world. But God will bring his justice against it. And that's one of the things we learn here. He doesn't take injustice lightly. He doesn't just sweep evil under the carpet. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Not our God. So strap yourselves in for the next three weeks as we look at the book of Nahum. I know that judgment is not very PC. It's against the grain of culture and it's not very popular. But guess what? It's good. It is good. And that's what I hope that we see as we begin our journey in Nahum. Maybe you haven't thought of it this way, but for the downtrodden, for anyone who's been kicked in the guts, there's great comfort in God's judgment. If you're someone, that, or, if you're someone or... If you, sorry, or someone you love has been the target of terrible cruelty, violence or injustice, Nahum's for you. If you can't understand why bad, bad people thrive and good people suffer, Nahum's for you. If you hate that the world's not fair, Nahum's for you. If you have an eye for history, and as you look back in history, all you see, or what you see, is evil people getting off lightly for what they do, Nahum's for you. If you long for something better than what we have now in this world, Nahum's for you. You can see in verse 1 that Nahum's prophecy concerns Nineveh. To give you an idea what was going on, I'll bring up a map here. You can see the Assyrian Empire, the world superpower of the time. And Nahum wrote down this vision when Nineveh, sorry, when Assyria, their capital was Nineveh, was at their absolute strongest. As I said, Nineveh was their capital, and it was a huge city that, in every respect, reflected what these people were all about. They were wealthy, intimidating, supremely arrogant and overconfident. Their cruelty knew no bounds. They were basically the Nazi Germany of the ancient world, the Assyrians. Listen to what one ruler of Nineveh boasted about. I built a pillar over against his city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar and some upon the pillar on stakes I impaled and others I fixed to stakes round about my pillar. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers and from others I cut off their noses and their ears, and the eyes of many men I put out. That was was included in this king's accomplishments and recorded in the nation's history. Assyrian kings committed these kinds of atrocities for centuries. Everyone around them copped it. Everyone. No one was immune from them including God's people. See, Assyria, by this stage, they'd gone into the northern part of Israel and they'd smashed God's people in the north. They'd taken them away to exile or just killed, killed them. They were Gonskis, the northern tribes of Israel, gone. But tiny little Judah in the south was left. A blip on the map, and you can imagine what life was like for them. They were kind of like Poland, in the Second World War, between Russia and Germany, except they were between Assyria and Egypt. They were just a buffer. And they copped it, and they lived in fear of their enemy. But now Nahum comes along, and he announces, enough's enough. And with beautifully crafted poetry, that's what this book is, it's poetry, he writes down how God's going to deal with them. Now I know that poetry isn't everyone's cup of tea here, is it? Who'd ask for a book of poetry for Christmas? No one. No one. Not many of us would. Oh some oh, there you go. Derek would. Maybe this describes you with poetry. You wouldn't choose to read it. You don't see the point of it. You hated it or continue to hate it at school. Okay, maybe that describes you, but if that's you, I want to say to you, for the next three weeks at least, give poetry a go with Nahum. It's compact, it's sharp, and it's vivid to make a point. See, Nahum's poetry captures his message so beautifully, because it allows you to feel the force of what he's saying in a way that prose or narrative doesn't. That's why it's here. You see, for Nahum, every paragraph, every sentence, every word, even every syllable, even every syllable is carefully crafted to pack a punch. Well, we're in chapter 1, and we're starting with Nahum, the poetic theologian, or in other words, Nahum, the dude that writes poetry about the character of God. And then in chapter 2 next week, we'll look at Nahum, the poetic war correspondent, On the scene, laying out the fall of Nineveh. And then the third week, we'll look at Nahum, the prophet of an offended God. But let's focus now in on chapter 1, which reveals so much of God's character behind judgment. That's Nahum's focus here. And in verse 2, what we see is that God is a personal judge. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord, repeated for the third time, takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. God is disgusted with evil. God is disgusted with wickedness. And because he's good and just, he won't stand for it. He's rightfully angry. And personally sees to it that justice is done. You see, to take vengeance means to make retribution. There's repayment for every evil deed. The punishment fits the crime. What's handed down is what's deserved. No less or no more. Now, we might wonder what God's doing in the world. We might not understand why he allows certain things to happen. We might feel like he's just turned his back on the world, that he's lost touch with the world, that his finger is not on the pulse anymore. But no, that's not the picture of God here. God sees everything and he notes it down and in his anger at evil and injustice, he will come in judgment. But he hasn't got a quick flashpoint like you or I. God's not like that. God doesn't fly off the handle willy-nilly. He doesn't lose it like one of my daughters did the other day when his sandwich isn't cut in squares. God's not that kind of God. He's slow to anger, verse 3. He's patient. His judgment is held back. But don't make the mistake of seeing this, this patience, as a kind of weakness in God. He won't leave the guilty unpunished. Vengeance will come. The Lord is mighty. And Nahum uses the forces of nature to help us to grasp something of this mighty judge. No words are adequate, really, to describe this mighty judge, but Nahum has a crack at it anyway with his poetry from verse 4. The ominous clouds that build in a storm are the dust that God stirs up as he marches across the heavens. Picture that. The sea, that alien force that the Israelites used to hate, that strange force you're better off having nothing to do with. And I agree with that. I don't really like the sea. It scares me. Well, that sea, it dries up at God's command. And the rivers run dry as well. Fertile pastures... Bashan, which is in the north, the fertile land there. Carmel as well. They just wither. (laughs) Fruitful plants, the famous blossoms of Lebanon. They fade away. Mountains quake violently, the hills melt. Can you picture it? Black Mountain, melting like chocolate at the presence of the mighty and awesome God. At the presence of the Lord, the earth is laid waste. Everything is destroyed. And with this picture, with this picture of the awesome power and the mighty judge, Nahum asks in verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? On Boxing Day in 2004... You might remember it, some of you might not have been alive, that's okay. On Boxing Day in 2004, a tsunami smashed the coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. It was all over the news. The scale of this disaster was huge. Over 200,000 people were killed or presumed dead, and around 1.7 million people were displaced. The power of this tsunami was massive. But God is infinitely more powerful than a tsunami. See, with a tsunami, we're talking about an impersonal force with no moral power. A tsunami doesn't get angry. A tsunami doesn't take vengeance. A tsunami is not like a sniper who lines up the enemy in the crosshairs and gets ready to shoot. But God is personal, as we've seen. And he is mighty. What a combination. The personal and mighty God in one and the same God is the frightening combination of almighty power and complete righteousness. When He comes in judgment, who can stand? We're reminded that one day Jesus will come in judgment and it will be like this. And if we don't have our trust in Him, the reality is we will face the awful judgment of God. We'll be given exactly what we deserve. There's a warning in Hebrews 10.31 that says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, Nahum prophesies that the Ninevites are about to find that out. See, Assyria, or sorry, Nineveh was given the opportunity to repent about hundred years before when Jonah was sent to them. Do you know that story, Jonah? He didn't want to go, did he? But he went anyway, preached that judgment would come if they didn't turn to the living God, and they repented then, didn't they? And God spared them. God extended his kindness and his grace to them. But those days were long gone by this stage. Now they're the judge's target, firmly in God's crosshairs. And the message is pretty clear in verses 8 to 11. With an overwhelming flood... He will make an end of Nineveh, verse 8. Whatever they plot against the Lord, He will bring to an end, verse 9. They will be consumed like dry stubble, verse 10. What's the picture there? The Lord is going to wipe Nineveh off the map. Destruction. A total devastation is coming. Never again will this nation rise up. Never again will they boast in their greatness at the expense of others. Never again will they rule the world with terror. They've been so stupid to plot against the living God. The king's been an idiot to set himself up as God's rival, verse 11. From you Nineveh has come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. It's not a good idea to pick a fight with God. Someone you can't beat. But that's what they've done in attacking God's people, in attacking God. And it will be their undoing. They've been smashing everyone else. But they're now going to get smashed themselves. They're going to get some of their own medicine. And it'll be so severe that they won't recover from it. It'll be the end of them as a nation, as an empire. God is the God of nations. And nations come and nations go, don't they? Big empires rise and big empires fall. Have you heard the name Sennacherib? Have you heard the name Tiglath-Pilesar? I don't really know how to pronounce it. Have you heard the name Ashurbanipal? If you have, I'm, it's because of two reasons, I reckon. It's because you've read them in the Bible, because they're there or you're some kind of history buff or historian or archaeologist. Otherwise, you've never heard of these Assyrian kings. Kings who in their day were Napoleon, Stalin and Hitler. People shook with fear at hearing their names. But today, they're not even footnotes in our minds. Big empires are like that they can collapse overnight. They're not forgotten quickly, but they are forgotten. In the 30s and 40s, who would have imagined how short the Nazi regime would be? Don't pick a fight with God. He's passionately concerned for justice and he will bring his perfect justice against all nations who oppose him. But there's more to the picture here of God's judgment on Assyria that we see in verse 14. How are they described? I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Vile idolaters. That's what they are. It might seem strange to us that God would act so strongly against idolatry in a world that preaches acceptance and tolerance and open-mindedness to all things. But God hates the lies of false gods. He hates how they promise something that only He can give. He hates how they destroy societies of people made in His image. He hates how they distort who He is, turning Him into a product of our imaginations. In Nineveh, idolatry looked like statues or images, statues that couldn't even move by themselves. You had to lift them up to move them. Statues that you had to clean. Statues that you had to put under something to stop the birds pooing on them. Can you see the absurdity of that? Idolatry? Well, in Canberra, it looks a bit different, doesn't it? We might not bow down to statues or images. But in Canberra, it might look like numbers in a bank account. Or likes on Facebook or eyes glued to a screen. The worship of money, the worship of reputation, the worship of pleasure, whatever it might be, I'll let you fill in the gap. It's so destructive because it can only ever be fueled by arrogance and pride. The same pride and arrogance that led to Nineveh committing atrocities and being judged by God. See, we'd be fools to think as a nation we couldn't become like Assyria, wouldn't we? That we can just leave God behind and that things will just go better. See, the Assyrians established a kingdom without the true king, the true God, and it was vile. Post-Christian Australia, as we begin to as we began to hear last week, is attempting to build a kingdom without the king, taking down the structures that have been handed down to us from uh, Christianity and replacing them with something else. See, we want the security, we want the peace, but we don't want the one who can bring us that. How do you think that's going to go for us as a nation, I wonder? See, maybe our nationalism, if you like, should be like Jesus' nationalism. Do you know what Jesus' nationalism looked like? The love for Israel, the love for Jerusalem that he had? He wept over it at the coming judgment on his people. He wept over Jerusalem, and maybe we should be doing the same more often, weeping over our nation that is more, more and more heading away from God, heading away from the true gospel, and becoming proud. But Nahum shows us and this is really important, interwoven throughout this whole book, Nahum shows us that judgment isn't the whole story. Judgment leads to what is better, what is good, because that's what God is. He's good, he's kind, he's loving. In judgment, we see that God is mighty to save. Yes, he is mighty in judgment. But that judgment always has the purpose of salvation in God's overall plan. It's always salvation for his people. And so judgment on on Nineveh meant salvation for Judah. They were caught up in the great Assyrian Empire and they'll be caught up in the destruction of it. But this tiny little tribe, this blip on the map that was treated with disdain, will be cared for and protected by God, the God who loves them. See, living under this cruel and evil empire would have sucked a lot. But they have nothing to fear in the days to come. Because the Lord is good, verse 7, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. And down to the second half of verse 12, although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break the yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. What amazing words of comfort and reassurance for God's people here. The promise of freedom from that cruel empire. No more living in fear for Judah. No more laying down at night wondering if you're going to wake up. No more of that. The guarantee of a better future. A future where you're free to express yourself as one of God's people. God's not only the judge, he's also the saviour. But he can't be the saviour if he's not the judge do you see that can you see that here i'm reminded of 2 peter chapter 2 that verse that says the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment god loves all and will judge with anger his enemies and judge with mercy his friends. The mighty and personal God stands up to all that's wrong, everything that's evil, everything that is against him, to make an eternal existence that's truly great. Now, sometimes what we do as Christians, when we think about our, our salvation, all we do is look back, don't we? We look back to the cross, rightly, and we see what we're saved from. We're saved from our, from our sins, and we find forgiveness there. But we've got to do more than that. Did you know that the, the New Testament, more often than looking back in, to salvation, looks forward to salvation? There's a salvation to come that's really important to grab hold of. See, we're saved for something, not just from something. And we're saved for life eternal life with God, where everything is put right, where there is no cruelty, where there is no injustice, where there is no one who raises their hand against God or his people. But as we reflect on love and justice, maybe we like the idea of God's love more than his justice. Don't we? Maybe we like the idea of God's love more than His justice. There's probably a couple of reasons for this. And the first one is that we're, we're not just victims of injustice, are we? We're culprits of it. And so God's justice then is uncomfortable for us because we know that we are part of the mess and the broken world that is full of injustice. But there's a second reason too. And I reckon the second reason that we, love, that we like the idea of God's love more than His justice is because perhaps we're not directly impacted by evil and, in, and injustice. Perhaps it's too easy for us just to turn, turn around when we see it or, you know, rig up our Facebook feeds so we don't have to look at it or whatever it is. And so what I've done the last week, and I invite you to do the same, is every time you see something that's evil or wicked or, or even smells like injustice, just stop and think about it, reflect on it. And here's what I've seen as I've done that. I've heard about tea companies in Bangladesh exploiting the poor to make a profit. I've heard about a woman killing and dismembering her husband. I've heard about an asylum seeker on Manus Island, under our care, dying a preventable death. I've heard about a soccer goalkeeper, abused on social media for a mistake in a big game. Trolls online behind a keyboard saying, I hope that you and your family gets cancer. How horrible is that? so-called fan. And you know what else I've heard recently? It's hard to find out about because the Western media is not reporting about it. And I'll let you come up with your reasons why that might be. But the slaughter of Christians in northern Nigeria that's getting reported as just a clash between two groups of herdsmen over farming land. How can that be the case when as far as I can tell, 100% of the people that have died have been Christians and 100% of the people who've committed the crime have been Muslims. Is it because our Western media is afraid of being accused of Islamophobia that they're not reporting on it? Christian leaders and pastors in northern Nigeria have been crying out for people to listen but no one is. No one listens to their pleas, no one, you know, we, get, we, we hear things like, which is really important, listen to the victim, believe the victim, but no one's believing these victims of the injustice. Children and, and women are being slaughtered in their homes as they sleep, that's, what, that's what's being met, talked about here. Now with that with those things in mind, what kind of god doesn't care about this stuff? What kind of god just turns around and doesn't doesn't engage with it? What kind of god doesn't hate this stuff? What kind of god would do nothing about it? Well, it wouldn't be a loving god, would it? A loving god has to be a just god. There has to be justice. Love requires justice. And isn't this so important if we're going to understand the cross? The cross where the Lord Jesus gave up his life for us, the cross where we see the love of God and the justice of God, the mercy of God and the punishment of God, without justice, without the guilty deserving punishment, the cross of Jesus doesn't make any sense. The cross demonstrates most fully that judgment is the path to salvation. Jesus judged instead of us. Jesus punished instead of us. Jesus receiving the just punishment instead of us. And so as we live in Nahum for the next three weeks, and as we wonder how we can be taken through judgment safely, Lift your eyes to the mighty God who brings perfect justice, most fully, seen in Jesus. Lift your eyes to the God who brings perfect justice and brings salvation to the world He loves. And that salvation is found in the place where His justice and love come together, the cross. I'm going to end now with A verse, the first verse of Rock of Ages, a hymn which captures the place of refuge so beautifully for us who are seeking our God to save us. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, hide me now, my refuge be. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power.